If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 will be our text today. <clears throat> A bit shorter passage than we had last week in chapter 5. But as we look at Acts chapter 6, we see that God's doing a, an amazing work in the midst of the church. And so we, uh, we're walking through the life of the early church. But before we read the text, I want to invite you to turn to the Lord with me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, Lord, we come transparently asking that you would speak to us through your word, anoint our ears to hear, anoint our minds to think upon it, and God, grant us the grace to love your word even as it challenges us and causes a change in our lives. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Growing Pains. And that's exactly what we see happening in the life of the early church. They've been growing. And they're experiencing some difficult days as they've been growing. So I want you to follow along as I begin reading in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, we all experience growing pains in life. If you're an adult, you've experienced growing pains. If you're a college student, you've experienced growing pains. If you're a teenager, you've experienced growing pains. If you're a toddler, you've experienced growing pains. And if you're an infant, you've still experienced growing pains. We've all experienced growing pains in life. And it's just part of the natural process of growing from infancy into adulthood. The body undergoes a series of changes. You may even say, as we grow older, we continue to experience growing pains. Well, at times, the growth that we experience, oftentimes this growth is painful. Sometimes it's just awkward. In a similar way, the early church is going through growing pains. They're growing through infancy, and as they do, they're discovering new struggles within the midst of the body and their fellowship. Think about it. In, in chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And now, more, or, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. At this point, it's gotten too, the, the number's gotten too big to even count, most likely. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says the number of men had grown to about 5,000. 
That's the number of men. That didn't include the number of women and children within the midst of the early church. And so this is a large number of people. In chapter 6, verse 1, here in our text this morning, we see now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, you see they they were continuing to increase. In fact, there was exponential growth in this new church, in the early church. They were growing by leaps and bounds. New converts were coming to the faith everywhere they turned. You know, last weekend we had family in town visiting for July 4th. And the family that was here, it was my brother, my sister-in-law, and their two young children, Wells and Carrington. And as they were here, we did a lot of things. We even posted some things on Facebook. We went uh, to Tickfall River and enjoyed tubing and, and kneeboarding. And uh, we went to the state capitol and, and just kind of had some, took in some local cuisine. We just had a really good time. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy, it's a way that I'm gifted, Uh, It's to exercise hospitality. I really enjoy hosting people. I really enjoy cooking things. And and I enjoy seeing others experience joy through something that I've done or provided. So it's just, it it brings great joy to me to see others enjoying something. But when your rhythm of life, your rhythm of daily life is interrupted for a specific season it can become uncomfortable. In fact, oftentimes it it becomes uncomfortable. Your routine changes, right? Uh, You've got different people staying in your house and that changes the way that you go about things and the way that you do things. You're, You're interacting with different personalities. Your house is full of people. So I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You've had situations where your house has been full of people, and things just aren't normal. They're out of the norm, and that becomes difficult. Well, the early church was experiencing this kind of thing on on a macro scale. The growing pains that were affecting the life of the church were beginning to, to be noticed, and they had been noticed by the apostles. But there is there's another issue at hand. And we can't turn, the bl- turn a blind eye to the other issue. There's it's kind of this flip side of the coin to the story that Luke is telling us. And that flip side of the coin is that this is Satan's fourth attempt to get at the early church and the successful ministry that they were walking through. The first attempt was through external opposition from the religious leaders. Do you remember in chapter 3, Peter and John walking to the temple, they heal the lame man, they preach the gospel, and then they get arrested and put in jail overnight. They're charged not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. And then the second time, the second thing that happens is there in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, what do they do? Well, there's moral corruption. This is a, there's, it goes from external, external opposition to internal corruption. So Satan tries to get at Ananias and Sapphira, tries to get at the early church, rather, through Ananias and Sapphira. To the point that in in, in chapter 5, verse 3, what does Peter say to Ananias? Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see, the church was growing in number. And here's Satan coming against the church, trying to beat down the church, trying to stop the success of the early church from spreading. Then there's a third way. The third time that it happens is through external persecution again. They arrested all of the apostles this time, and they threw them all in prison, and then they beat them and let them go. And the apostles counted, it, counted themselves, um, they were honored 
to be worthy of being beaten for Jesus' name. But then now, fourthly, here's the fourth time that Satan comes against the church, and it's through an internal means of opposition. It's through the squabbling that's happening, the murmuring. Gongismos is what it's called in the, in the Greek text. It's this word that sounds like what's happening. It's this gong clanging, right? This is what's happening in the midst of the early church. And so this is a distraction. It distracts the leadership. It's threatening to distract the congregation from prioritizing God's mission and keeping God's mission a priority. And so the first truth I, I want us to see this morning as we're approaching this text is when the kingdom of God is advancing, Satan is at work trying to disrupt God's work among his people in the world. When the kingdom of God is advancing, Satan is also at work. And what Satan is trying to do, he's trying to slow down the spread and the advance of the gospel. And one of the ways that he does that is by disrupting the work that's happening within the body of Christ. We identify the problem in verse 1. We notice that the disciples were increasing in number, right? That's what he says there in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, what happens? Well, a complaint arises in the midst of the body. And this complaint arose really between two groups, but one group felt that they were being slighted, the Hellenists. Now, these Hellenists, they were Jews, but they were they were Hellenized Jews. They had, they had become Greek in the culture. They had been uh, adopted or they had adopted Greek culture as their own culture. Even to the point that they spoke Greek instead of speaking Aramaic like the Hebra Hebraic Jews or the Hebrew Jews were speaking. And so at this point we need to kind of step back and realize the diverse nature of the early church. If you think back to chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 we see this diverseness of the early church. This was on the day of Pentecost. Remember what happened there. There were Jews gathered from every nation, right? That's the point that Peter makes. And it say, he says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling the gospel in our own tongue. So you see how many different nations, how many peoples, how many different cultures were there represented. And now, put that into perspective. That's the early church. <laughs> what, happens, what happens when there's a convergence of many cultures and, and many languages and many worldviews into one community? Well, chaos can easily follow such a convergence such different mindsets and perspectives, such different cultures and ways of doing things. But I want you to recognize this is really a testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, in the life of believers. The new community is said to be of one heart and soul in chapter 4, verse 32. Now, if we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, I want you to hear how this has happened. This is Paul's explanation of what happens when the Holy Spirit of God transforms people. Verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What's that saying? That's saying that Jesus Christ, by going to the cross and rising from the grave through his flesh, he's broken down this wall that divides nations. How has he done that? Well, he's done that by making peace between man and God. And so now there's this common unity, this common bond for all who profess faith in Christ. He goes on in verse 15. He's done this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ gives peace to all who profess faith in him. And by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, he begins to do this work of transformation in our lives. So it's not about us. It becomes about God. It's about serving God. It's not about meeting my needs. It's about meeting the needs of others. And so as we join this community of faith, our own personal preferences begin to take a backseat to what the Lord God is doing in the midst of his body. And it becomes so much bigger than the individual. It becomes a community of faith. It becomes one people who are not concerned with their own preferences as much as they are concerned with advancing the kingdom of God. With changing lives. With seeing the hope of eternal life spread throughout all people. And telling people, here's the way to have forgiveness of sin. You don't have to have shame anymore. You don't have to carry around the burden and weight of guilt. You can come before the Lord through Jesus Christ and you can lay that before him. This is the hope of the gospel. And this is what the apostles have been preaching. And so when we think about this mass convergence of cultures into one community, and then we, we, we read something like verse, chapter 4, verse 32, that says they were of one heart and soul, we think, no way! But then we realize, way. Right? We were, this is how God works. This is what God does as he transforms his people. He gives us a heart and a a love for others. He he increases our affections for one another. For people who might be very, very different than we are. But there is a a unity in, in faith. There's a bond in faith. And so here in 6 1, the, the Grecian Jews, the widows, were slighted. They felt slighted because they had been neglected with daily provisions. And in the case of of this happening, they were suffering because of it. There's no indication of some intentional act of, of overlooking their needs. It just seems the case was the apostles had too much going on administratively, the task was too big for them. They, they were stretched too thin. And so this was the result of insufficient administration within the new community of faith, the, this fledgling community in the bigger picture. So, so here's what's happening, right? Remember Acts chapter, uh, chapter 4 at the end, Barnabas sells a piece of land. He comes and lays the money at the apostles' feet so it can be distributed. We, we said then that there was an evolution that needed to happen in the life of the church, right? And, and so we get to chapter 6, and here's where, here's where it's going. And then it continues to go as we read through the New Testament. So we're still in development stages of the early church. But in the, in, in the midst of what's happening here, the apostles are realizing they need to engage the body of Christ. In the bigger picture, 
there's murmuring that's going on. And this murmuring is seen as a threat to the stability and to the unity of the entire community of faith. And the apostles know that if division and murmuring continues, then their focus will no longer be on proclaiming the gospel and spreading the gospel, engaging in God's mission in the world. Their focus is going to have to be on healing division and discord. And if Satan gains a foothold within the new community, then the work of advancing the gospel will will cease. So the apostles realize this. And they they begin to put something in place. They do something about it. You know, in our day and in our entertainment culture, I think we're all too familiar with this sort of thing. Churches are filled with murmuring Christians who, who are dissatisfied with the way something's done. Sometimes it's for good reasons, but more often than not, it's, it's for bad reasons. More often than not, it usually stems from personal preferences rather than theological differences. So I'm thankful that Crosspoint isn't this kind of fellowship. But then again, neither was the early church, were they? Until it happened. Until it happened. And so here's the challenge, church. We must be on guard against this divisiveness. We must guard our own lips and minds. Constantly checking ourselves against the gospel. Constantly, constantly evaluating our, our preferences in this sense. And surrendering them to God. We must realize that Satan is cunning. And we have to strive to walk together in unity of heart and soul. So when, when the murmuring was found out, the apostles addressed it immediately. They didn't try to sweep it under the rug. They didn't act like it wasn't there. So their solution was to engage the community in meeting the need. You know, early on in ministry, I learned an important and valuable lesson in this regard. And in short, the lesson was this. Hard conversations don't ever get easier if you delay them. Right? You need to have the conversation that needs to be had. And difficult issues don't ever get resolved without dealing with them. (laughs) You can't kick the can down the road in that sense. And that's exactly what we see happening with the early church. The apostles say, here's something that's going wrong. Now we need to deal with it. We need to address it. And so the second truth I want us to see is that every member ministering is God's design for the local church. Every member ministering is God's design for the local church. We see it in verses 2 through 6, the biggest chunk of the text this morning. They understood the threat to community. The apostles recognized their limitations and they engaged the community in service. And so what happened was the murmuring actually unveiled the greater threat within the body. And the greater threat was distraction. And so first, let's learn something about the apostles. Something about the apostles. Number one, they understood the threat to the community. They understood the threat to the community. That is a community of faith. So in verse 2, they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then secondly, in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, let me ask you a question. Why was the ministry of the word so important in verses 2 and 4? Well, the first reason I would offer you that it was so important is because God ordains it so. God has called the apostles to go and to preach the word. And as they are doing it, they are actually writing 
the New Testament in the midst of their proclaiming and teaching the word. And so God ordains it so. We, we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells Peter, I mean, Paul tells Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, speaking about the Word of God. Or we learn in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, uh, verse, verse 13, until we all, Paul says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. This involves the speaking ministry within the church, particularly preaching the gospel, preaching God's word. Well, God ordains it so. It's the, models, it's the model that the apostles give us in the early church. The reason that the ministry of the word is so important because the, the apostles actually give us this model in the early church. And it's the model of proclaiming God's living word. Consider what the rest of the New Testament says about God's word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, discerning the truths and the intents of the heart. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But another reason the word of God is so important for the community of faith and, and, and protecting it is so important for the community of faith is because it's God's word that shapes God's people. You realize that as you read God's word and submit yourself to God's word, God's word will shape you. Perhaps that's why we don't read God's word as much, right? Because we know it's going to shape us. We know it's going to, it's going to change some things. It's going to cut some things away. It's going to do some refining work in our lives. Because we might read something and say, huh, I don't like that, right? This is what God calls me to. And what must die in that moment is my personal preference that I might walk in accordance with the will of God. So God's word shapes us. It's the catalyst that brings about transformation in our lives. The Holy Spirit uses God's word in your life to change you and to transform you. That's how it works, believer. That's, how part, of, that's part of your Christian maturity and growth. But hear this, before we can be a people who work for the transformation of others, we must be a people who are transformed ourselves. Before we can be a people who work for the transformation of others, we must be a people who are transformed ourselves. This is part of the call of the, of the church, not just the early church, this church, Crosspoint. This is part of the call. We want to be a church. I want us to be a church who are reaching our community, who are seeing converts come to the faith. I want to see that in the midst of our body as, as you go out and, and I go out and as we, we collectively are sharing the gospel with others. I want us to see, brothers and sisters, new converts in the faith because God transforms lives. Jesus Christ is in the business of transforming people's lives. He changes us. He makes us new. And he does this great work of bringing peace. And also, we want to proclaim that. But before... Before we can be a people who work for the transformation of others, we must be a people who ourselves are experiencing transformation. And that requires us to be a people of the word. Be a people who ourselves are engaging in God's word. 
That's why protecting the ministry of the word was so important. Not only was it important for the life of the community, though, understand it was also important for individual believers. I would say today, that's the contextualization that we need to understand. It is important for the ministry of the church. God has ordained this type of format, proclamation of His Word. But then that also goes beyond the Sunday morning worship service, our corporate gathering, to our individual lives, right? Are there things in our own life that are hindering us from diving into God's Word? Are there things in our own life that are distracting us from spending time with God in prayer? I'm sure there are. These are the things that we need to give before God. We need to learn, like the apostles, to prioritize. To prioritize God's word. Why was the ministry of prayer so important in verse 4? Well, I submit to you that it's through prayer that we enter into God's space. Right? By the Holy Spirit, God has entered into our space in one sense, right? Heaven came down and glory filled my soul like the hymn we sing. This understanding of God's spirit within us, God dwelling within us. But in the midst of prayer, we're actually entering into God's space. You know, we have this portrait of our picture in our minds of we come into the throne room of God, right? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Prayer is also the battleground of the soul and, and mind for the believer, it's in concerted prayer. It's in, uh, it's in consistent prayer that we come into God's presence and we experience the grace that He desires to give us. Prayer is where we align our will with our Heavenly Father's will. Prayer is where we align our will with our Heavenly Father's will. This is like Jesus modeled in the garden, right? Father, not my will, but your will be done. We battle there. Part of the battleground of the mind, the soul. It, we know the good we ought to do, but, but we don't do it, Romans 7. So this is that struggle taking place in, in prayer. In Ephesians 6, the, you know, the armor of God, the, the, the battling against the principalities of darkness. That our weapons are not earthly, but they're heavenly. This idea of praying. Prayer is a declaration of our dependence on God. Which means, not to pray is a declaration of our independence from God. Right? When we refuse to pray, we're saying, we're independent. We got this, God. But when we pray, we are actually telling God, God, we, we depend on you. It's not just this Christian ease of walking through life saying, well, I'm, God's sovereign and His grace is over me and He's not going to let anything happen to me that, that He doesn't want to. That's not, that's not the idea of joyful Christian living. That's not God's design for the abundant Christian life. We are to come before God prayerfully. Seeking God's direction. Declaring our dependence on Him. Prayer leads to powerful, spirit-filled living. This is a truth that we see over and over again in Scripture. And finally, I would say prayer is essential in the Christian life. Prayer is essential in the Christian life for these reasons and for many more that we could list this morning, possibly that you can even list now. Why is prayer important to you? Maybe that's an exercise you can take. Why is prayer important to me? And if you run out of 
reasons pretty quickly, then maybe the main reason prayer needs to be important to you is because it grounds you in your relationship with God. Well, they, they understood the threat to the community, and they said we're going to guard against it by recognizing our limitations. They recognized their limitations. This is wise counsel for us when we have so many things going on and pulling at us, right? Here are the apostles, spirit-filled apostles, doing signs, of, uh, signs and wonders, bringing healing to, to people all over. Even the shadow of Peter is bringing healing to people. And here are the apostles saying, we can't do it all. And so this is a priority issue for the apostles. Devoting oneself to prayer and to preaching, to preaching the word, is a spiritually demanding responsibility. And it takes time to pray and to listen to God while studying His Word. So for the apostles, not only were they teaching God's Word, as I said a moment ago, they were writing God's Word. Their preaching wasn't, as some might think, void of, of study. They needed to devote time and disciplined attention to preparation. And they felt the weight of the ministry of prayer and preaching being encroached on by the ministry of serving tables. And so they said in verse 2, we will not neglect it is not right that we should give up that is we won't neglect or give up preaching the word to serve tables and so what the apostles are saying here is that to neglect the preaching of the word in order to serve tables would be to neglect their god-called ministry by allowing something else no matter how good it is to come before their call of serving god so instead, in verse 4, they said, we're going to do this. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Those gifted by God and called to serve as elders, pastors, overseers in the church have to work diligently to prioritize and devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. I shared this joke with a friend yesterday, but one time a parishioner came up to a pastor after service and he said, Pastor, that was a long sermon today. And the pastor said, yeah, I didn't have time to prepare a short one. But isn't that the reality? If we're going to say something succinctly, we've we got to have time to prepare it. it. It really takes working through it, thinking through it critically. Well, that's something about the apostles, but let us see something about the congregation. They engaged the community in service. Here's what they did. Now, Seven holy men they chose from among themselves. But they're, the bigger picture here is they're engaging the community in service. I want you to do an exercise with me. In your Bible, uh, underline verse 2. If you're using your phone, you can highlight, or if not, you can just make a mental note. Okay? Underline the word serve in verse 2. Now, if you have the NIV, underline the word wait. And if you're using the Holy Christian Standard, you can underline the word matters. But this word serve. And then in verse 4, I want you to underline the word ministry. Do you know in the Greek text, this is the same word? One's a verb, one's a noun. Verse 2 is a verb. It means to serve. Diakonain, where we get our word deacon from. All right? It means to serve. And then in verse 4, it's diakonia. It's a noun in verse 4. But it's, it's the same word in the Greek text. And so to deacon is to serve. And so what's important about recognize, or what's important for us to recognize here is that both of these areas of service 
both of these ministries are important within the church. And I'm thankful for the way that I see uh, brothers in Christ, all the members of the body, many members of the body, I should say, serving within the church. I'm thankful for the, the godly men at Crosspoint who serve well as deacons. But what's happening here is that this is offering a much bigger picture than the office of deacon. The apostles are recognizing the importance of the congregation in serving one another. And what they're recognizing is that God has actually gifted members of the body, His people, with many gifts. So, do you know that God has gifted you to serve Him, believer? His Spirit is within you? Do you know that God has specifically gifted you in ways that you should be serving Him and serving the body of Christ? Not only does God desire to use you, He also expects to use you in His service. God wants to use us to share His gospel. God wants to use us to advance His kingdom. So in verse 3, here's what they did. They selected seven men of, look at the the description, seven men of good repute. That's the word for martyr in our New Testament. That's where we get our English word martyr from. They selected seven men who were good witnesses. They had a good testimony. They were thought of well. There was integrity and character there. These men must be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And in verse 5, it says this was pleasing to the congregation. So the apostles prayed for them, laid their hands on them, commissioning them to go out and to carry out this ministry. And so here's what we see. Both are necessary within the life of the early church, within the church today. God has uniquely gifted people within the body to serve in these ways and to serve in many other ways. So it's not a matter of of ranking within the community of faith. It's a matter of responsibly using our gifts to serve the body. So the apostles recognize this, and it's imperative that we recognize this as well, church. Each one of us. Recognize the way, search out the way that God has gifted us and the way that God wants to use us in serving and advancing his kingdom in serving the body of Christ here. As we think about this contextually for our own congregation, I praise God for so many who serve from our deacons who who minister to the needs of our congregation, especially our widows to our management team that ministers through taking care of the administration or the building design team who's ministering through developing a worship space. For our congregation to gather in soon. We have members who minister as Sunday school teachers. From children to adults. Those who serve in ministries like ESL and miscarriage ministry. The Mother's Day Out ministry. The worship team. There's so many ways that we are and can engage and use our gifts. For the edification and the the building of God's kingdom. And to reach the community. So I think we can glean some wise and godly counsel from the apostles' activity and and interaction in the early church. As a congregation and as individuals, we need to recognize our limitations. You know, it's better for us to do a few things well than to do a lot of things mediocre. This was the threat to the ministry of prayer and the word. But it's also the threat to every believer. Are there things in your life, believer, that are hindering you from prioritizing God's word? 
Are there ways that you're being hindered in your service to God because you've allowed other things to come before? You've, you've neglected that gifting and that calling that God has called you to in order to do something else. It doesn't even have to be church-related, right? I mean, it, you've, you've neglected something. You've neglected this gifting of God in your life in order to do something else. My prayer is that God would prompt us to engage our gifts in the ministry of one another so that we might grow as a community of faith into maturity of faith. I continually pray that God would raise up men, laborers within the congregation, raise up women within the congregation who are sold out and wanting to serve and engage and employ their gifts in serving God's kingdom and serving the church. It's important for us to recognize every member ministering is God's design for the local church. But finally this morning, as God's word increases in our lives, God's people will increase in our midst. As God's word increases in our lives, God's people will increase in our midst. I don't intend for that to sound like a formula, as if we do this and then this is going to happen. But I do think that healthy church growth I don't think, rather, that healthy church growth can be reduced to a formula. I do think that healthy church growth comes as a result of the church faithfully engaging in God's mission. So look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And church, the, the challenge I want to leave us with this morning is that we need to be mindful of gospel conversations. We need to be listening and praying for the opportunities God gives us to see them, that we would witness for Christ. We need to be intentional and prayerful as, as we live with opportunities to witness for Christ. We need to be intentional and, and careful and prayerful as we walk with Christ and walk by His Spirit from our homes to our vocations, and to everywhere in between. When God's word is prioritized in our fellowship, in our individual lives, then what's going to happen is God's word is going to grip us, it's going to captivate us, and it's going to captivate our affections, it's going to captivate the whole of our lives. And we'll live differently, and we'll look differently. And we'll be more intentional in these relationships that God gives us. Don't you want this? I do. Don't, don't you want your children, your co-workers, your neighbors to come to faith in Christ? This ought to be what we're praying toward. But it's going to take intentionality on our part. We have to make efforts in, in this direction. And as we share life together in Christ through home groups, through church-wide fellowships, through our vocations, recognizing that our vocations even are is our calling from God. We share life together through neighborhood involvement. We, we invite others in to this fellowship of believers. And we seek to love others as we share the gospel with others so that God's name is glorified. We seek to build relationships with people that don't have faith in Christ. We do this through local missions like ESL, do this through our miscarriage ministry, food pantry ministry, 
through Mother's Day Out, through connecting with groups like City Year, International Missions, the list could go on and on. But here's the thing, all of this should be bathed in prayer. Prayer for the Holy Spirit's anointing in our conversations, on our mission. So it takes the entire community serving. It takes the entire community ministering in varied ways that God has gifted us. Are you using your gifts to serve God at cross point? The church was God's means of reaching Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even the nations. And I want you to know that church is still God's means of reaching Baton Rouge and the nations. So by God's grace, we can reach our communities and our co-workers with the gospel of Christ. And we'll do this as we prioritize God's mission in our lives. As we use our God-given gifts to serve one another and as we're increasingly gripped by God's word. So I leave you with this challenge. Believer, are you using your gifts to serve within the body of Christ? God has gifted you for that reason, to serve him. Believer, are you allowing something to distract you from the truth of God's word, from being gripped by God's word? Are you neglecting God's word for something else? Friend, if you're here this morning and this relationship with Christ thing is all new and not sure that you're, uh, you agree with it or even would consider it, I want to ask you just to ask God to open your eyes to the truth of his word, to consider uh, that you might consider in your own heart and life if God's word has bearing on your life. And consider how God might be speaking to you today, challenging you to this faith walk and faith journey in Christ. I want to pray and then allow you to respond before the Lord in your own heart and mind with praying. Or maybe there's a way that you want to uh, commit something to Christ this morning. Some part of your life that you've neglected perhaps or using your gift to serve in the body. Maybe for you it looks like you're looking to find a congregation, a church home where you can unite in, in this unity that we're talking about and serving the community and reaching the community. Whatever be the case for you this morning... I want to invite you to respond as the Lord is leading you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we close our time corporately now, we are considering your word, thinking upon how it applies to our life contextually. We thank you for such an incredible example in the early church, the apostles and the early congregation. We pray, God, that you would strengthen us as your people, that you would increase our fellowship, Lord, that you would grip our lives with the truth of your word, and, Lord, that you would transform us and change us. And, Lord, let us be intentional and see those opportunities you provide for us on a daily basis to give testimony for your glorious grace in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray.